Today we're talking about Pennsylvania composers, how music education kept happening in higher ed, and a new way to teach conducting. It's all in today's PMEA's Take Note podcast, presented by the Slippery Rock University Music Department. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of PMEA's Take Note Podcast. Thanks for joining us. As you see on the screen, we have a good friend of mine and someone I love to chat with, uh, Dr. Jason Warsbud. He is a professor of bassoon and associate director of bands at Indiana U University of Pennsylvania, known to us here as IUP. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Mark, it's a pleasure to be here. Always, always. So let's, uh, I, the question that I just love asking everyone who comes on here is, tell us the kind of the story of your year. Uh, this has been a crazy year, uh, almost a year and two months now uh, of living <laughs> through this. Can you believe it, right? Uh, what's, what's been the story of, uh, of music education at IUP and, and, and then what you've been teaching? Well, it's interesting, you know, because I, I, my teaching load typically is, is the, is the symphony band, which is the second band. I teach uh, all, you know, the private bassoon studio, and then I teach conducting and I teach music theory. And I actually had some student teachers this year. So the big surprise, well, there were a couple of big surprises. One was that in terms of the, the, the studio teaching, which I did all remotely, in some ways, I felt like I became a better listener because I had to, because, and some of it was, the, was some of the limitations that we had with the technology, but I felt like I just, I had to really listen almost at the microscopic level to see what type of change my students were making. So that was interesting. Um, the big surprise I think was my conducting classes. In some ways they were the best students that I've ever had. And I, I came to the realization that the reason why is that every single student that I had in my conducting class, every single one of them were looking into a camera. And so when I would say, okay, can you adjust, you know, this type of gesture, can you make it look like this? And I would mirror it in my screen and they could see immediately whether they were making that change. And so when we go back to some semblance of normal, I'm now gonna teach all my conducting classes and we, we have a dance theater space, which has a big wall of mirrors. That's where I'm gonna teach my conducting classes from now on, because they're able to make, they were able to make these, these changes just immediately. Um, my, my theory classes actually went pretty well too. Um, my big purchase for the year was, was a dry erase marker and, uh, and, and, and a, a, a staff, a dry erase music staff board, which is probably about this size. So I did all of my teaching kind of with a dry erase board, which was kind of cool. The, the biggest change obviously was the ensembles. And so I did, I, we, we did a lot of small ensembles because we were kind of limited by space. We were kind of limited by, with, with time, with 30 minutes. So I did a lot of the flex band stuff. And I'm actually, I'm very excited about this flex band stuff because I think it's going to have a lifespan beyond the pandemic for schools that are small and don't have and don't have continued instrumentation for community bands for the same reason for small ensembles. I mean, you can take now, uh, you can take 
a group now of about six, seven, eight students. You can play Frank to Kelly's Vesuvius if you want to. And you never be able, you were never able to do that before. So I think composers are starting to think about what they're doing a little bit differently and make multiple versions. And uh, the craft of that has just been um, terrific. I think about one of the pieces that I did this year was Aaron Perrine's Life Painting. And he originally had that piece premiered, I think it was at the, either the 2018 or 19 Midwest. And then he did a flex band arrangement. And you can't really hear the difference. Hmm. You really can't hear the difference, which I think for the, and for the craft of the composer, I think is, a, is, is, a, is pretty amazing. And I also think that the composers that are in school now, the up and comers, I think they're gonna see the value in this as well. So, I mean, I think there is a silver lining to some of that, but I do think a lot of this repertoire is going to have a lifespan beyond this unprecedented, you know, time in our history. The other thing, one, well, the other thing I would say is that it, I have been, one of the neat things is that I've been, due to this video reality that we're living in, I've actually been able to do some bassoon teaching to, to folks that live kind of far away, mm -hmm. which I've never been able to do. So that's kind of been interesting. I've been able to reach some kids that normally I would have to, you know, you, you spend two hours in the car, you go there and you go two hours back. And now I don't have to. And so that's kind of been interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Mark. No, I, I was going to go back to this, the flex band uh, thing, you know, and I think that, so you, you talk about it from kind of the, that composing perspective, you know, f let's flip the coin on the student perspective, a student can get a whole lot more out of, uh, out of it because, well, one, you're exposed to some literature that maybe your ensemble could have never been exposed to. Um, you may be then ex exposed to understanding different pieces of the composition, different, different, you know, melodies or harmonies that you may not have been, say, say you had performed this, this piece in the traditional form before. Uh, so I just think, I just love that you're, you're making that point of the value in those pieces. Well, and the other thing that, that I didn't even mention was that because these are smaller ensembles now, it really builds a lot of individual and independent yeah. musicianship because, you know, depending on the size of the group that I was working with, I may have one student that's on that one part. And normally, unless they were playing in like a brass quintet or something like that, they're not going to get that experience. But now they're getting this, this type of, it's almost, it's almost like an, or, like an orchestral wind type of experience, if you want to think about it like that, that they're getting with this. So it does build a lot of independent musicianship. So, I mean, that's another, I mean, that's kind of another silver lining part of it. But the only other thing I would mention is that the kids this year, I thought were very resilient. True. They really appreciated the chance to make music when they had that opportunity. Because the, with, the, with the rehearsal schedule that I had, I only saw them 30 minutes once a week. And that was like their, that was like their 30 minutes to do it. So in some ways, I think they appreciated it a little bit more than maybe the day-to-day type of class schedule that a typical, you know, music education student would have, you know, they, 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 they tended to see it as an opportunity, maybe more than an obligation. Right. Right. 
Boy, you know, and I, uh, that, that goes to this idea of then, you know, what happens when, uh, well, maybe the, the, you don't know what you have till it's gone type uh, thing. And so we, 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 we've taken for granted w- without realizing it, uh, going into a rehearsal hall and rehearsing with everyone. Um, so that may play into why they found so much value in coming together in, in musically connecting, because that's been connection obviously has been the big complication in the past 14 months. Uh, so I think that that, that might, that might be part of that. Uh, but hopefully we're, we're back together soon. And and the other thing that I hope, well, and the other thing that I hope is that not only do the students appreciate it, but that, you know, that the, that, that the parents of all these kids that haven't had a chance to do those types of things that they start to, they start to even become a little bit more vocal when things go back to normal and they become more, you know, more proponents of music education because they see these things that they haven't been able to do. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that because of these unique times that there is going to be more support for the arts all over the place. I mean, I'm hoping that there's going to be this renaissance of support, you know, for professional symphony orchestras, for opera companies, for all these people, for all these groups that do not have, I would say consistent support because that the big difference between the New York Philharmonic and the Frankfurt Radio Symphony Orchestra is that the Frankfurt Radio Symphony Orchestra has support from the government. They, They really support that that group. And while New York Philharmonic, while they may receive some funds from like National Endowment of the Arts or something like that, a lot of it is private donations. And so, you know, I mentioned Frankfurt because they've been Frankfurt, uh, the Frankfurt Radio Symphony has been putting on some marvelous um, concerts out recently on YouTube. Hilary Hahn just did the Dvorak Violin Concerto. I just saw they put out Dvorak 7. They put out the Mozart um, Concertante for wind, qu- for, for wind Quartet and Orchestra. They're doing a lot of recording and they're, they're putting out a lot of concerts. So if you want to get a concert fix, check out the Frankfurt Radio Symphony Orchestra. They're just doing some amazing things right now. But when we go back to in person, go go to your local symphony too. We Absolutely, want you butts oh, yeah. and seats and, and, yes. and support it, support it, and, de- and and demand it. Absolutely. And you know, when you were talking about you know maybe parents uh, understanding a little bit more, you know, and and being more vocal advocates, uh, there's this program that the Music Achievement Council had put out. It's called First Performance for Band, and it's a it's a it's a very scripted uh you know uh concert that says and when the kids first come in this is what they learn and they play a whole note they play their first note and it goes through the process and explains the process to the parents in the room and i'm just thinking okay you know we couldn't do that this year but how does that evolve that 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 really awesome toolkit can evolve and be okay now let's let's remember what we missed this year and how important music was during this year. So this is our chance to kind of rally behind it. So uh, I think there, there's a project in there for some of us to start working on. Well, the other thing I've seen is that in some concerts, I just saw this on Facebook not too long ago, where I saw some video of when beginners give their first concert, one of the things that they do before the concert starts is that they actually teach their parents how to play their instruments. Yes, yeah. 
and the parents will play like hot cross buns for the kids before the concert even starts, which I just think is great. You know, it's a lot of it is going to be, I mean, I think we all know as music educators that advocacy is kind of an unspoken part of our responsibility. It, it, it just kind of, it, it just is. That's how the art form is going to survive. And I just think we have a unique opportunity now to not only advocate for what we do, but what it does for the students. And in the absence, what have we, you know, what have we been missing? Why is, you know, why is it important? And I think now in the absence of it, we see what we, we see what we've been missing. So and, this is this is the this is the time that we have to make that to make that case. And we have the stories from those who were able to stay involved in some way right. to say this is why it was so valuable to me in this this difficult time. Boy, it's so even much more better for me when when <laughs> right. we're you know we're all right. back in person. Um, so okay, speaking of virtual, so just last month, PMEA, uh, we you know we would normally have been together in a uh, conference center somewhere, watching ensembles, doing professional development, walking around the exhibit hall, getting you know free snacks from the exhibitors. <laughs> right. uh, you know that's I think that's what we missed the most, right? Uh, but so we couldn't do all of that, but we still did a virtual conference, and and you were so wonderful to provide a couple sessions uh, for the conference. Uh, so if you haven't registered for the conference, that's the other kind of great thing about virtual you can go back and so you can go back and register for the conference and still see all of these sessions uh on demand but you did a couple one was this great chat that you did with your colleague craig dennison which i i would have sat and watched for another couple of hours just to hear you guys talk but you did this other session about pennsylvania composers and I'm a Pennsylvania native. I've been here all my life and I'm watching this and I'm I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. You've compiled this this wonderful list uh, and I don't want to give it all away because I want people to go take a look at the session but um, I'm just curious where did that where did that come from in your head to do that and what what were your takeaways? Okay, well it's interesting, you know, uh, when when I was a college junior uh, I got a chance to record a CD at IUP. When Jack Stamp was our director of bands in 1991, we did the very first IUP band CD. And it was the band music of Pennsylvania composers. We did um, just up, we did a piece of Jack's, we did a piece of David Amram's, the Chicago Tribune March was in there. Uh, another piece by one of our IUP composers, Dan Prolongo, we did a Persichetti piece we did Peter Menon's Canzona I think might have been on that disc and so that was kind of my 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 introduction to that and then just over time just through composers that I've met I just started to become I started to think well that's interesting they have a Pennsylvania connection and they have a Pennsylvania connection and then when I when I started making this list it was just I, I was just not knocked out by it and then thanks to my good friend Doug Velasky who's editor of PMEA News, he's as much of a band repertoire nut as I am. And so I, I was saying, you know, I'm doing this project about BA composers. And he, from his experience playing out in Allentown and playing in a lot of those community bands, he gave me a whole list of people I had never even heard of. So that, so that was interesting. And then the other interesting thing I found out through doing some of this research, there was this wonderful thing called the Pittsburgh Exhibition that took place right around the turn of the century. And it was a big, it was a big kind of arts 
kind of a big arts event and Sousa's band would regularly come through and give concerts. And one of the neat things I found out about that is that when Sousa's band would come through, he would feature P Pittsburgh composers hmm. on these concerts. And in one, and in one particular case, um, there was actually, he, he featured a female, one of a female composer's band piece. And that was unheard of because yeah. I mean, that was a male dominated, it was a male dominated band. It was a male dominated profession, but he did that. Sousa did that. And I just thought that was just incredibly forward looking. I thought for special, you know, for, for that, for that time. And so there were a lot of turn of the century Pittsburgh um, band directors that had pieces performed. And so it was just interesting to see, and that was just in Pittsburgh. I mean, I, I mean, I think if I had had a chance to spend, one of the things I would love to do is kind of mine the depths of kind of like the history of community bands because yeah. in, in the state, because I think if you did that, we would even find even more music that we, that, that, that we don't know. You yeah. Know? Uh, so, I mean, that was kind of, that was one of the big surprises for me, just to kind of look at all of these folks, kind of like, you know, kind of like the origins of the band repertoire in the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible list. Uh, and I, I would tell people, yeah, go, go check out the session, but you can also go on to PNEA's website and we have a list. It was actually just very recently updated of community bands uh, in Pennsylvania. And you look at that and you're, it's, it's amazing how many there are out there. So I do think that's an interesting uh, other piece of the puzzle uh, that, that is kind of a companion to how many composers we have here. Well, and some of them were, you know, when I was a kid and growing up in Indiana County, one of the things that I did as a very young clarinet player, I used to play with this, it was called the Indiana Concert I think it was the Indiana Concert Band or Indiana Symphonic Band, but it had its origins in one of the small mining communities, some, one of the small coal mining communities about maybe 15 minutes away from here. And so a lot of these mining companies had their own concert bands. Hmm. And so there's this band that continued for years and years and years, but it originated out of all of these coal miners that played, that played band instruments and wanted to get together. And so it would be interesting to see, particularly on the Western side of the state, to see how many of those bands, how much information that you could, you know, that you could find. Right, you know? yeah. The There's other origin thing, stories. Yeah, yeah, well, the, the other thing that I would love to do was find out a little bit more about, about, the, about how A.J. Davenport's Salute to PMEA came about because originally that was called Ale Aliquippa because he was the band director at Aliquippa yeah. High School. And so uh, I, I was talking with a colleague of mine who used to teach there and he said he believes there are still all kinds of unpublished marches that he wrote that are still at the high school. Because I know Davenport was, I think he was a president of PMEA. I believe so, yes. Yeah, and but, I, but I, I haven't been able to find like any type of, any type of documents that, that, that showed how that composition became salute to PMEA. I haven't been able to find any correspondence or anything like that. And so that's something else I'd love to, to, to find out, kind of how that happened. You right. know? And then of course, when you talk about, you know, you talk about Aliquippa, you know, then you're talking about, of course, Henry Mancini. And unfortunately, we didn't get any original compositions uh, from him. There is this great 
uh, orchestra piece called Beaver Valley 37. Do you know that piece? No. Beaver Valley, yeah, Beaver Valley 37. It's this orchestral suite that he wrote and it's pretty good. And it's you can find it on YouTube. Huh, all right. Well, now, now I have something to do later today, okay. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, fascinating stuff. And, and I, I agree with you. There's a lot, there's a lot of rabbit holes we can go down there. And um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think we need to be doing that in the next couple of years, just because it's just fascinating stuff. Uh, but we could talk about that for hours, but we don't have hours uh, right now to do that. So um, l- let me switch gears a little bit. And uh, so here we are, your semester is over. The K to 12 school year is almost over. Um, there's a bit of an exhale from so many of us vaccine is out there. Uh, there is, there's, you know, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, probably a lot of light at the end of the tunnel, although we don't know what that looks like. Um, I'm just curious for your thoughts on, you know, what now, what, what have we learned from this? Where do we go from here? What, what does it look like? You know, um, and I know that's incredibly broad and, and I won't hold you to anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And I think, you know, looking forward, I'll, I'll just talk about it maybe from the music educator perspective, you know, what we've, I, I think we've learned a couple of things. One is, is that if you want to solve any problem, give it to a band director or a choir director and give it to any music teacher and they'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was amazing how fast that aerosol study came together from University of Colorado and then the other ones that were, I think University of Maryland was one of the other participants, you know, that came together very quickly. And so I think you see, you know, you've got a lot of folks that are, that are, that are creative problem solvers that are very passionate about, about the art continuing to happen and finding ways to make it happen. But I think, but, you know, we're also finding things that we already knew in that what we do is a social art it is, it's a social art and we can teach, you know, we're in the people building business. And so what, I, what I'm hoping is that when we do get to a semblance of normal, that with this new push towards social emotional learning, that, that school districts and the parents, where everyone will see the value, the additional value of coming together and, and, and doing this art. And so I'm really hoping that there is going to be this ignited interest and support and passion for what we do and part of it because we haven't been able to do it. I think in terms of especially the folks that are in college right now as music educators, what I have told them kind of is like, look, if you can survive this, you can survive anything. Hmm. But but you know, but but I think you see this is the type of creativity that we're going to have to kind of that, that we're going to have to work with for a while. And so I think, you know, being familiar with the flex band, being familiar with some of these, you know, uh, you know, technology continues to creep into everything that we do. So I think, you know, there are going to be some advances, I think, in, in, in technology that are going to that are going to help us. But it's not going to it's still not going to replace the, you know, the process of a teacher and student coming together and making that piece of art, you know. Folks much wiser than me have said the big difference between music and all the arts, uh, uh, music, art, theater, whatever, it's the, only, it's the only art where the teacher and the student are together throughout the entire process. Right. That's the only one. You know, you're not going to go to an art gallery for a student and the art teacher 
is over there in the corner shouting, you know, add more red. You, you don't see that, you know, you, you, you don't see that. So, you know, you, there is this symbiotic relationship, I think, between the teacher and the art and the student that is going to continue, you know, that's going to continue to be, you know, to be there. Right. So, and maybe then lastly, I'll say, I think maybe we, that I think we've become, we're going to be, we've become better communicators because we've had to be. Yes. Yes. You know, that's what I think. I mean, that, and that might be, that might be the best takeaway because in any relationship that you have, personal, professional, or otherwise, it's all about communication. And so being able to communicate with each other effectively, that just benefits everyone in the long run. Yeah. And, and, and to your, your kind of your first point was, yeah, we're open to the change. We have to be open to the change going forward, being that, uh, you know, a flex band, being that, uh, you know, what you talked before about how you're going to change how you do your conducting class to uh, just how we communicate. So uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more uh, on those on those points. And we just we we all have to be ready for the unknown, I guess. Is what it is. Well, yeah, you know, and it's, you know, I still remember my chemistry teacher in, I guess it was 11th grade, giving us this quote, chance favors the prepared mind. And so I think if we go in looking at possibilities as opposed to obstacles, I think that's kind of the mindset because this, everything that we're doing right now, everything that's happening with the pandemic is still rapidly changing. I mean, it still is, you know, it's the old, we're building the plane and flying it at the same time. I mean, it's so, I mean, I think it's gonna take a while until we get a good idea of what next academic year is going to look like. But I take comfort in the fact that again, if you got a problem you can't solve, give it to a music teacher. Right. Because they'll solve it. Yep. Uh, solve I it. completely agree. And that that has certainly happened this year. And uh, and Jason, I, I've I've seen you do it throughout the year. And I just hearing this conducting class story makes me think that you're the, the wheels are still turning and you're finding ways to keep uh, doing that. So, hey, thanks for taking some time and, and joining us on the podcast today. Uh, much appreciated. Well, Mark, thank you so much. And I wish all of you at PMEA continued success as we as we continue to kind of kind of wander through the wilderness here a little bit. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And uh, thank you all for joining us on today's PMEA's Take Note podcast presented by the Slippery Rock University Music Department. We also want to thank our sponsors, the Bucknell University Music Department, Lebanon, Lebanon Valley College, and Robert Insides Family Music Center. We'll see you next time.